Welcome to the Wise Musician Club. We are a group of musicians, performers, and music executives who realize that access to the music industry has become harder than ever, and we want to change that. We want to show future rock stars and rock stars that want to continue their career in this digital environment that there is a pathway to success, and it's not all based on luck. We are going to dispel myths, share the trade secrets, and explain the industry from the inside and out so you can absolutely kill it in the music business. Hey, everybody. It's Amy Schultz from the Wise Musician Club welcoming Matt Sherpella today here from the band Bender from the early 2000s. Matt is the guitar player, singer in the band, and we wanted to talk to him today about his story. He's got a very interesting story from where he started and where he is today and how music is continuing to be part of his life. So welcome, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So, you know, as we uh, talked a little bit prior to recording, you know, the goal here is to really... um, share your story, share little nuggets and gold nuggets, the mic drops that you can drop about things that you learned along, along the way. Since, you know, what we're doing here is we're, we're mentoring and coaching a lot of up and comers and those that have had careers already that want to continue in this digital world. So what I want to hear from you today is sort of, what is your backstory? How did you enter the whole music realm? What happened? Well, I, I mean, probably just like anybody else, um, when I was in my teens or early teens and I just love pop music. And then that turned into um, love with the guitar and obsession with the guitar. But it was just, um, you know, like that phrase, like it's my passion. People say, I'm a, you know, was my passion. I guess it is um, where I just wanted to be part of that. You know, I, I didn't know how I was going to do it or I didn't know if I wanted to be the next Jimmy Page or Eddie Van Halen or Ingbe. I just wanted to be in a band. I wanted to be, I, I just wanted to be part of that excitement that I experienced. It, that was my world. So it was a very natural progression just to be in that world. Um, you know, so, having a band, go ahead, like, or just having a band that played covers, eventually starting to write your own music and just, you know, I, I only went to places where there were musicians, guys who play guitars, a certain kind of music had to be rock music. So that's, that's definitely work out of start. So you didn't start on piano. You didn't start. Oh, I did. You did. Okay. Oh, we're going to go back to the crib here. Yeah, let's um, start. I did start on the piano. Um, my, you know, my mother one day said, hey, we're going to get you a piano. What do you think? I'm like, okay. And then I found that I really liked it. And then I progressed. I think my teacher had about 60 students, something like that. And I progressed from like opening the recital at, remember Southridge? And it's a big retail mall. And I, then I ended up closing the show and then, but that's when, yeah. And then that's, but I was obsessed with it though. It, you know, once I, you know, I, I played out a lot of books at a lot of, you know, at, at one time I just really was, uh, you know, it was easy for me. It wasn't like, well, I've got to do something or uh, I should really practice. It was more like somebody just turned the light switch on and then that was just it. You know, that's what I, that's what, you know, who I was. What age um, were you during this? I don't know. I I mean, in grade school, I I must have started around fifth grade or sixth grade or something like that. And then, um, so then once the guitar took over, once Kiss took over, then the piano, not so much. Well, I started playing Kiss on the piano. I got a Kiss (laughs) songbook. And then very quickly, I was like, well, wait a minute, maybe I could get a guitar. And I asked for a guitar and I got one. And then after that, the piano was just like, went by the wayside. 
I didn't really play it anymore. I've got it here now in our house, but you know, my kids tinker with it, but that's you don't awesome. even really hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. So the gu guitar took over and your influences, obviously Kiss was the foundation, but who, as your storied career, um, you know, happened, who have been your influences from that standpoint? Well, um, you know, you know, Ace Freely and then Eddie Van Halen and then a lot of the 80s California players and some of the English players. But um, I'm just trying to think if there was really a model that I used. I don't know if there really was. I know that I just had a voracious appetite for learning songs, which I still do. Um, I do an acoustic gig where I have like 10 pages of songs I can call off at any time, you know, and I can remember them, you know, and um, so maybe it was just out of that voracious appetite of learning, I started to piece together uh, a song, uh, my idea of what I thought was good, what I wanted to put into a song. Um, so it really wasn't like a role model. You know what though, there was kind of a role model and I used to read all the magazines about the 80s showcase bands, which is I think how our band did it. I don't know if I'm skipping ahead, but we, um, to me it was always the song, no matter what. Like, before, you know, we were talking about marketing and what's, you know, the key, what can be the key to get you noticed, get you paid. But if you don't have the product, I, I mean, it sounds so like Gene Simmons-ish, but if you don't have the product, um, you don't have anything, you know. I mean, maybe you've got good looks. I don't know, maybe people can do that. But, I mean, you've got to be able to write the song. And if you're not a student of that, I mean, I don't see where, what else would follow, you know, than knowing how to write or having a style and putting music together. So let's talk about the time that you transitioned from learning piano, transitioning to guitar. I'm assuming that was your teenage years. What did, yeah. you, what did you do to then finally become part of a group or, or actually get to get that feeling that you wanted to be, you know, that rock star in front of people and sort of prove your worth? Well, um, you know, at first it's, you're a little uh, intimidated. So it was your immediate friends. And there was a guy that I grew up playing with. And I think we talked one of our guys into being a drummer um, and then met another drummer who were, was delivering papers. So in the beginning, it was just us friends all from South Milwaukee, which is a suburb, not South Milwaukee, but a city called South Milwaukee. And, um, but then you quickly realize once that fizzles out, you do have to venture out. And, and that did seem intimidating where you know, I can even remember thinking it's like the daunting task of how do I meet people? Like, how do I go out and how do I find good musicians? And um, I don't know you if just, you were like me, but I was a, a complete shy, 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 almost a recluse shy. Like I could not put myself out there at all. Did you, and a lot of people I know are, that are musicians are similar. Like, how do I, I'm so fearful. That fear is just stalling me. Were you similar? Well, there's a lot of, by the way, there's a lot of talented people who ruin their career. I personally tried to help a band that I, I thought was signable. Uh, people in the business were ready to sign them and the, like the singer pulled a no show at the gig. There's a lot of really talented people who at the point of success crumbled. It happens a lot. I, I was surprised that there's a lot of talented people who seem to be missing that piece that they're unwilling to go out and put themselves in front of people, um, you know, to make that step of, of being noticed. Um, 
what was the question before? Oh, oh, how did I meet people? Yeah. I don't know. I just, I was compelled because it was either sit in my room or, um, you know, in music stores, they had the ads. Even though it seems corny now, to this day, if I go to a music store and I see guitars wanted, I still kind of look at them because I used to comb those things. I used to look in the paper and made those phone calls and went through a huge series of that where, you know, the guy I was playing with, the drummer at the time, we would call people, these are influences, will you come down? So that was a big part of it. Um, you know, later on, when you get older, you go to the bar and then you meet people if you're in, you know, the, the rock world. But we did a lot of that where, um, I don't know, we were determined, I don't know where it came from. It was like, I wanted to play, I wanted to put together a band and if I could find someone that wanted to do it also, I was, I was gonna make the call or I was gonna, drive to the rehearsal place or whatever. So that, um, I guess it was the desire to put that band together that I always wanted to be in, which made me, you know, and the thing is, once you make that first call and once you go through the inevitable disasters and the weird people and the, it gets easier, you know, I mean, it really does get easier. Got it. So let's transition into, um, I'm assuming you were in a couple bands prior to Bender and Bender was sort of many, your, many. You know, your showcase, you know, where you really stepped out, you got the, um, the attention. So walk us through that path. How did that happen? Well, um, I was in, you know, like a heavy metal show band, like an 80s show band. And we had, um, it was a very good band, very good band that I look back. I was, and it was surprising to break it up, but I found myself, at that point about maybe 25 or 26. I just wasn't getting anywhere. And I had a song writing partner, Tim, Tim Cook, you know, Tim Cook. And we were just sitting there going, you know, this is a very good band. I, we've never played with such great guys, which was the culmination of what I was talking about being, you know, getting good on our own, getting our equipment uh, perfect, and then meeting people who are also doing the same. And the end result was great. but. It wasn't getting me anywhere, you know. I, I had derailed myself from the from the task of songwriting, like that burning desire that I want to be, I want to put out that song that somebody else likes, not for vanity's sake. I, I just wanted to be part of that that thing. So we actually started to have conversations, like we need to find an original singer. Uh, the, the singer we worked with was great, and we did write songs. We had about maybe eight or ten, but the goal was to only play. Um, our own music and you know there were some style clashes there but um, so we had a singer named Kent and we actually found him in Milwaukee they had like a local music uh, show and um, we heard him sing on it and was very impressed by his voice right away and we all heard it separately and came together you know, on Monday and said did you hear that one guy Kent that guy has got it he just sounded professional to us so we literally found out who he was, went to his show, and stole a guy out of his band. And said, we're willing to put the time in, practice three times a week, we're not screwing around. Do you also not want to screw around? We want to um, be serious and we want to have a career roof. We want to make a mark, do you want to do it? So we took him out. He had just put out a tape that we loved, by the way, in his other band, and we stole him. And, and he left, I mean, we were convincing because we meant it, you know? We weren't going to play a show six weeks from now and not care about it. We were going to practice on Monday, on Wednesday, on Friday. So, so how did that, how did, with bringing 
is it Ken or Kent? Kent, Kent, Kent. Yeah. Kent over to the band. How, you know, how did you start attracting, attracting label attention? Well, um, it, it did actually, it, it was prophetic in the sense that we had played so many gigs and saw so many bands gutting it out. For some reason, we just realized the power of the, the finished product. And it was very much based off the showcase model, which I don't know if it worked today or not, but which was to get a collection of songs first. So the first thing we did was, you know, get together five months, record a record, and then put it out, record it ourselves, mix it and put it out. So before you even heard us or knew who we were, you had our music. So it's like, here you go, here's, well, we charged back then, but, and people would pay it because people didn't have CDs, which is another crazy thing. And um, that's how, so for me, the, the first show, you're on our side, so to speak. I mean, if you like the band, um, from our first show, everybody knew the music. So the model was, and we probably should have gigged a lot more than, than, than we, than we, sh than we did, but it was really like, we were, we weren't going to play anything more than six. We actually took it from Motley Crue. Now I remember it was actually something, it, it could have been any band, but it was really Motley Crue. And I hate to say that, but their thing was to showcase, not play out at all. You know, it wasn't like Van Halen back in the day where they were just serial giggers or they played five, six nights a week, which I think works. But for us, it was don't hit them over the head too much and make them come out every time to see us. Play once every six weeks, once every eight weeks. Have the record. They already have it. So that that's how we did it. And actually, I'm not exactly sure how uh a and r scouts ever found out about us but they seem to find out about us right away and i don't know how and it, but it was the power of the record because we had spent so much time making it try to sound professional and uh do a good job on it that that got us everywhere actually that paved the way for everything without even really having played so. that's awesome so yeah. so you garnered label attention and then what happened walk us through that okay well the first time for, for our first record, um, we, we opened for uh, Dockin' at Summerfest. It was eight o'clock, was was, I think it was our second gig. And well, we kind of bombed, like nobody liked the music. You know, we played well, but there was a rep from Atlantic, I think the label, you know, all these guys are VIPs. There's like 50 VIPs, I don't know, back in those days. But I, I guess he brought it to his boss. And so we kind of failed. Um, and then this woman, Liz Redwing, came to see us. I think we failed on that too. So we had our first, um, what I found out was the most important thing was learning how to fail. Because we failed away right into a record deal. And, and, and our, the skin got very thick. And um, we failed more than we succeeded actually. And um, you get used to that really quickly and um, so after that first time where we opened for Doc and, and um, didn't do so well, it was kind of a regrouping, restrengthening, meeting some people and then failing and then working toward our next CD. And then we put that out and we, um, then we had the same, even more buzz. Um, I, and um, we had, I think just about every lay, old label at the time interested. It, it was very daunting. And then we went to, um, we got a manager who became a big deal. 
And um, we played Mob Fest in Chicago. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. They're trying to think of a showcase where he'd get us in front of everybody. So we weren't really ready. So instead of uh, having a showcase or a set show on our terms, he rushed us down there to play part of a three-band bill, and we failed phenomenally. <laughs> I thought we played good. I mean, but it was, from what I heard, uh, not impressive. And um, so we had all those people interested in us. And I was just freaked out, so they all passed. Maybe we'll come, you know, we did have some people come to see us after that, but, and I was very shook up by it, but, and, and the, the band goes, but we shouldn't have been. But we never slowed down. I mean, even though we were shook up, we never slowed down. Like a week never went by where we didn't do something. But it all goes back to that, that burning desire of wanting to be part of music. There was never a question of stopping. I mean, seriously. I, I mean, I look back, it was weird how single-minded I was and the rest of us were, which I think you need to find. You know, either you've got a super talented person who drags everybody else along and they can do it on their own anyway, or you get a few people that are just as gung-ho as you are, but for the right reasons, you know. You've got to want to sleep on that floor. I played in the band in St. Louis, and you, you've got to want to eat expired... Um, vending machine food but it was easy it didn't matter you know as, as long as there was my amp was there my guitar was there and as long as people wanted to write music um i'm sorry i keep wandering but that was kind of the attitude so the failing although it really sucks after being so sought after we just kept going like the little band that could no matter what and just kept playing because it's really all you can do yeah. and then you can Take the criticism, take the improvements, um, which are not easy to hear, but you can improve. I, I did. I think I did. And um, that ended up to TBT in New York. I think there was a few major labels coming to see us. I think MCA. Oh, the guy who signed Tonic came to our practice room in Waukesha. He, he came to that. I'm not going to mention his name. He probably didn't want to mention his name. He passed on us. He took us for something to eat afterwards, so that was nice. And then some guy who signed Slipknot, he came to see us in our practice thing and then took us to see Slipknot. Um, but it was really TBT out of New York who, even though they were like a large independent, TBT had signed like Nine Inch Nails, um, which Nine Inch Nails fought to get off that label. But they had roster, they had a budget, and they seemed to be so committed that we're going to make you guys the rock band that we've been looking for, that to us, it was like, okay, they have videos, they have tour support, we're just going to sign with them, that's what we ended up doing. And they came to a showcase, and thank God that one went great. And the guy, he, you know, he had a meeting with us, so the showcase went great, and we met him the next morning for breakfast, and I had to go deliver pizzas. So I said, can we do it at 10? Cause I gotta go. And then he said, well, I'm signing you guys, you know? And we just, I just sat there like, after all those years to hear those words, you know, I'm signing you guys. I was just like, I kind of looked at the other guys out of my peripheral vision. I'm just, did I hear that right? Did he just say he's gonna sign us? So he's talking and I'm not hearing anything, but I'm gonna sign you guys. I'm just like staring at him. And I look at the time, I'm like, um, it was really nice to meet you. I have to go to work. He's like, okay, we'll talk to you later. So I went to work, you know? <laughs> Wow, what a yeah. cool story. So I, I'm gonna crazy. tie I'm gonna tie what you just said back to something that is, <laughs> yeah, bring is, it back to reality. No, 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 no. It's really good. You just dropped a huge gold nugget. 
And what you just dropped is, is that you have to fail fast and you have to fail multiple times to finally figure out what works. And you're going to figure out what works based on not what you love. You may love a song, but your audience may not love it. It's going right. to be that feedback that's going to come back. So how many times you showcased and failed? And I did the same. I have a self-sabotage self issue myself, right? <laughs> so every time we had a showcase, you know, I would get sick. It just happened, you know, the anxiousness. Anyway, you know, it's all about it, it, failure is not a fail. It's a learning curve that you just learned from. You got better. You just said something that from a marketing perspective, and I'm putting my digital marketing hat on right now, it's fail fast. If you're going to fail, fail fast. Yeah. Let the data, let the people tell you, let the audience tell you what they like and then enhance that. And right. um, you just proved it right there. Right. I mean, and you guys probably weren't ready when those first labels were looking at you, yeah. you know? So, all right. So you get signed with TVT. Yeah. What happens? Well, um, I learned that I could drink every day, um, <laughs> which was strange, but um so we go, the band, there's a band Queensryche, uh, 80s, they're, you know, double platinum band. And they, um, they kicked off their opener, Jesse James Dupree, the guy from Jackal. And then we got about 28, uh, I think about a month worth of, worth of dates. So we're very excited about that. Well, here comes the next fail, by the way. Okay. So we go to the label, we showcase for them, you know, um, we do all that, we come back, we do the photo shoots, like the all day, get up at, um, you know, here's an interesting point, I don't know if this fits in the marketing, but I know that when we're being photographed, and you talk about the self-sabotage thing, and when we go meet these label president and all these people who come to you and they're like, oh, you guys are great, and keep hearing this stuff, and you don't, I don't, you don't believe it, and you feel like, you feel like a phony, like, why are they telling me this stuff? It's like, we're really not that good. And you definitely have to learn to deal with that too, where the expectation, um, you have expectations. This guy's about to spend a decent amount of money. He's going to give you money and they're going to do all this stuff. And it's like, wow, it's like, this, you want to talk about self-doubt. It's really self-doubt time. But then, you know, like you're saying before about failing fast, it's, you just, I don't know. It's like you either just kind of, you just kick in. You, you, you just go with it. It doesn't matter. Like, don't think too much. Just go forward. Just keep going forward. So that's what we did. And then um, th there's a lot in between, but we, um, so we finally get on the road with, with Queensryche. So we got about 20 dates. They're all sold out because it's Queensryche show and everybody loves them. So it's going to be a great getting our feet wet. Um, they put the single out. Uh, it was on rock, moving up rock radio which is not the same as the regular charts just, or that was back a long time ago. But, um, so we get on stage and after six shows, they kick us off and we drink, we do everything wrong. I mean, we were just like crazy people, you know, we're away from, we're finally in the big show for real. Uh, by then we had our showdown and we just, um, well, we drink a lot, you know, and we just, I mean, we played, and, um, but we were just crazy. You know, we didn't know the concept of it's their tour. They're paying for it. Um, it's their show. You're opening. You have a very small area to exist in. And you should probably exist in that area. And if they let you come out of that, you can. 
or if they invite you to eat with them, which they did a couple of times, but we were just so crazy out of our minds that it was like bringing people backstage that we shouldn't have. Uh, one guy from our band walking into their dressing room to talk to him before showtime. I mean, just really stupid stuff, but we were just so happy to be there. Ebullient, is that the word? No, not ebullient, maybe stupid. And um, so that was another fail. So all of a sudden we get the call from the manager, what happened? Like, what do you mean what happened? The show was great. It's like, they're throwing you off. Wow. What? And so they threw us off, but the label really didn't care. But it was, it was a strange thing, you know? It's like, hey, we just made it. Now we're official. I think our first show was in New Jersey, some theater there, and it's going great. They threw us off. What? And, um, but then, you know, you find out that that happened all the time and meeting a lot of peers on the road, guys in other bands, they got thrown off tours and, and they showcased 30 times and they got dropped and they got re-signed and got dropped. So it was just part of the process and I was finding that out. But by then I, we're a little bit better about it. We're like, all right. So we got kicked off. You know, then we went back out with Caroline Spine. Then we went back out with uh, Nickelback. So we jumped, you know, got with Nickelback, and that was when they were, I don't know if they were on Road Racer then, but they were still on the Leader of Men tour. So they hadn't put out that huge hit yet, or they, that big album, whatever. So there was always that, that specter of, for us, it was never zooming up. It was always that thing. It's like, wait a minute, we made it. Like, we're in Metal Edge Magazine, I've got it. We saw it in the stand at the truck stop. We showed people, you know. While we're at the truck stop and we failed again and we get they kicked us off again it's like this is just never going to go away you so know? nickelback kicked you off too no no i <laughs> i'm sorry actually it was queen's right but no nickelback went very well it was um we we joined them in it was the bill was three doors down nickelback and then bender and then we went with nickelback i think for about six weeks or something like that through the East Coast. We didn't do very much West Coast, but like through the East Coast. So, you know, but I'm just saying that, you know, there was another setback, like the, the Queensryche thing, but you're right. By that time, the setbacks became, you don't perceive them as a setback. It's like, okay, that didn't work out. We'll go out with this band. Yeah. Like you said, like, like you fail fast. You're not getting hung up. We yeah. knew we were good enough to get signed. People were liking the music. <clears throat> we were selling some CDs. Just a problem. Move on. Just, you know, yep. go over here. Fix this. Don't do that again. Don't walk in right. the openers dressing room <laughs> before they're about to go on. Don't invite people backstage. Or if you do, hide it better. You know, <laughs> don't be that loud drinking. You know, just reel it in a little bit. You know, so sell some more CDs before you can act like that. Yeah. So, so. So then we were finally off and running with Nickelback. Am I making any sense? It's like, Absolutely. I don't really get, I don't get interviewed much. So I'm just like <laughs> telling you my whole life story. No, it's all really, really good. And it really, um, persistence and action. And like you said, you know, it's part of the game. Rejection is part of the game. You know, people, there's going to be people that are telling you that you're so awesome a lot. And that can start to go to your head. 
but the reality is, you know, if, if this is really what you want to do, you just have to be persistent at it. You may not find the right audience or the right people that want to sort of embrace you right off the bat. And that's okay. But, um, and I'll bring it back to today's day. So this was a while ago, right? But today's day, we have it so much easier to find those people who will like you and will like right. that song. And maybe the, the general audience or the general population won't, but there's going to be these, the small niche of people that will. And mm -hmm. through digital, and it's not just, you know, blasting your stuff on YouTube or whatever, that you have to have a, a process to it. And, and what's really neat because it's digital, it will literally tell you if people like it or if they don't, it, 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 and, and you have that instant data, right? So, yeah. um, no, I can really appreciate your story. So, all right. So you're on tour, things are going well. Let's talk about maybe some wall that you hit. All right. So what happened that, you know, what happened to Bender? Well, we didn't sell any records is that's kind of what happened. It's like, um, we made a lot of friends, played with a lot of bands. Um, and didn't make fans. I mean, even to this day, it seems like once a month, all of a sudden I'll get, are you Matt from Bender? Yeah, 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 you know? And, and, um, so the wall really was that we didn't sell. We kind of come to the realization that the CD really wasn't that good. Um, through your label, did you have a distribution deal too? Yeah. I mean, you know, in retrospect, we were very unhappy with, um, they weren't getting the CD in stores. Uh, we were making fans, even on the Queens right, we, we made fans. And um, they'd say, hey, we can't get your, your, your thing. So sometimes- we, Being the but, early 2000s, things weren't digital yet, right? No, It was all right. CDs at that time. So you didn't have a way to reach your fans other than potentially, I think, email a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we were in Best Buy and they had end cap. We had end caps, but it's just like, I, I so, in, in retrospect, you know, the angry calls from the manager, um, they did pay tour support, we're out there, but um, I, I think just ultimately our, I, I think the music just kind of ran its course. Like it was, it was a decent first record uh, and we were ready to write another one. Okay. Um, take, taking from what we learned, I mean, you know, even as an artist, you go, well, it's my music and I want to do it my way, but you really can't get over seeing the reaction of people that you're playing in front of them and hearing what works and hearing what doesn't work. And it just, I guess through osmosis, you know, you don't, you don't want to sit there and go, wow, I'm going to learn all the cliches and do them better. But there are certain things that work and there's, you know, you do start to adapt the music to working better, you know, live or, you know, as a single or as, or as an album or as a work. So the, you know, we just kind of hit the end. Well, I think we toured for about maybe 12 months or 13, which was actually a huge success. We thought it was a failure, but I can't even tell you the bands that we met that were on bigger labels that after four months, that's it. They would just right. stop and say, okay, you're not selling, you're done. Um, th and that happened a lot. So I look back and TBT really stuck with us for a long time. So it's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. You'll hear my dogs. I've got three rescue dogs, so you'll okay. hear them. Right. Hey. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. It's part of the podcast here. It's part of the interview. Okay. It's happened before, too. So just let's just keep going. All right. So you, okay. you toured for 12 months. About that, yeah. And then, so talk to me, because we've talked to other people, 
that have gotten signed. And, um, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that, well, number one, these days, you don't necessarily have to have a label behind you to have success. But, you know, if it's the right thing for you, you have to, you have to really, I guess, scout that out. But a typical, let's talk about a, a record deal. What is a record deal? They give you uh, money. And then what are the expectations with that money that they're putting into you? Well, I, I mean, it's a return on an investment. And I, I mean, that's, kind of what it is. Um, you know, I, I was never on a major label. So you always hear those stories like, you know, oh, no one's really ultimately, uh, um, they ultimately care about the money because they're owned by a different company, owned by a different company. But um, it's got to be a return on an investment or there's got to be some kind of um, intellectual return to an investor. And by that, I mean... Did they make, pay anything back? I guess is my question because a typical record deal is sort of a loan, right? Oh no, you, you don't get no. <laughs> you don't pay anything back. That would have been bad. <laughs> uh, no, it's forgivable debt. I, I, I mean, in our case, you know, we didn't get renewed. Um, but no, you don't. But the thing I think what you're driving about the record deal is you've got to get um, your your music in front of somebody and that takes a lot of money and I remember um I remember being in um like a, a like a Burger King or McDonald's or no it was Walgreens when we were on the road and then I don't know not Britney Spears but somebody like that had their CD at like the point of purchase I'm like you know I, I knew how much money that took to place that thing in front of you so a record deal really is hopefully somebody with the marketing to do the heavy lifting for you. Cause I guess that's what you're, that's their piece of it. And, um, you got to get that music in front of people. I, I just don't know how else you do it. I, I, I mean, you don't want to demean music like it's a product, but how do you know about it unless you hear it and maybe hear it a few times. So that's all why you need a record deal. I mean, cause even back in the day, I guess Sweetwater, <laughs> Sweetwater call me. So even back in the day, you could have gotten in a van and, and sold your, no one was stopping you from driving around the United States. I don't care if it was the eighties and trying to sell your records, but I mean, it's just not, I mean, it's not going to be profitable. How do you get your music to a lot? Of, I mean, it's like a movie, even for like if star Wars, they don't release it. And okay. Bad example. Like, you know, like a, a more medium successful movie. They don't just put it out in one movie theater and it catches on they place it all over the United States at one time. And so I, I guess a record deal has got to do that on some level. Someone's giving you the money <clears throat> to maybe make themselves money uh, down the line, but there's got to be some mechanism where you're putting it out so people can hear it. Right. Um, I, I think that's what, what it really is, mm -hmm. is advertising. I mean. Well, right. And, and back in the nineties and two thousands, it was, if you didn't have a deal, it was all about how many faces can you get in front of how many people can you get to hear your music? Um, you know, to get recognized and to get feedback on if this is working, if they like your music, but today it's, um, not to say the touring isn't a huge part of people's business. <clears throat> it definitely can be. And, you know, sometimes that's the whole reason we wanted all wanted that feeling like, Oh, I wrote this song. I love it. Do you love it too? You know, you, you get that, that yes. feedback and that feeling, yeah. right? Right. But today, 
you know, digitally, we have so many platforms available to us that people get overwhelmed and with the bright, shiny object syndrome and like, oh, I need to go here, I need to go here. But there truly is a strategy to having success on driving people to listen or want to know more about you. And, you know, today, especially with video, just like what we're doing here, um, in addition to all the audio uh, ways that we can listen to art, you know, what people consider their art and their music, it's, 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 it's so easy. Well, I mean, right? I can, I can attest to that because we had, we had made seem like all our fans, not from the radio, but um, we had two songs and a PlayStation. Uh, it's called ATV off road Fury. I think that's where everybody, even in YouTube, will say, I heard these guys on ATV. My acoustic partner, one of them that I play with now, her now husband was like, I had that video game. You're that guy. That's how he heard it. And then we had um, a song on the Scary Movie soundtrack and a song in the movie of uh, 2,000 Miles of Graceland. And that really did everything. Yeah. The radio didn't do anything. It was the video game and the movies that did oh, everything. cool. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to wrap it up a little bit here. And yeah. I always ask everybody um, along your journey, and I know you're still performing music. It's not your full-time thing right now, but still music is a huge part. And I'm sure you're still writing and, and just, you know, I guess, you know. iPhone ideas. I've got like five albums in there. No one will ever hear, you know. Nice. <laughs> well, we'll get them out there. We'll get them out there for you. Uh, but what was your biggest epiphany that along your journey, and let's say it's even, you know, I'm not even going to tell, I'm not even going to guide you where it is. The, the biggest epiphany you had that you were thought you were going one way and it completely took a right, a right turn for you. What, what was that? What's the first thing that popped in your head? That's a good question. Like I almost want to answer to where you want me to go, but so what was the thing? Say that again, where, where it what, took a wrong. What where was I the thought biggest we're, epiphany? Like you guys thought this was <clears throat> happening or, or you, um, you know, boy, this is where I'm going. And all of a sudden, whoop, you know, a curveball hit or something just went, whoa. And I think you may have explained one of them, but, you know, just see what pops into your head. Well, I mean, the, the thing that popped in my head is, is when we didn't get renewed, when we seemed to be able, uh, we weren't selling a lot, but we always seemed to get accolades from very important people. Like, I, I, I mean, where I get a producer would call and we were working on our next batch of um, we had about 40 plus songs for our next record and um some pretty decent producers called like, well we really there's you guys are a real band so it somehow went from that to okay we've got all this material in the can to not getting renewed and no one wanting to touch us and i i remember going to the um u2 concert on the all that you can't leave behind or whatever it's called i, I don't know in uh, Milwaukee and we went down there and the band Garbage opened up <clears throat> and uh, their drummer, the producer, mm -hmm. um, Butch Vig, he's like, hey, congratulations, you guys, and all this stuff. And I, I just was just like, I, and I knew the record deal was over. And, and it was here, he was congrat. I mean, you want to talk about where I felt like we jumped on that speeding train. Whoa, sorry about that. And, yeah, and we were in the game. I got into where I wanted and, and I wanted to be in that world to we're not even on a label anymore. And then it's like, hey, isn't it cool that the guy from Garbage is talking to us and saying, hey, congratulations. And it's like, I'm not even on a label anymore, you know? So that's probably the most extreme case of, I know what it's like to be in this world 
to be in the, in the touring game and you hear all these things, you're definitely in a world. You get to do things that nobody gets to do. You hear things that you didn't think, didn't know existed, that nobody knows. And, and, and now we're out of it. So we had put all that work in the second record. The second record was going to be great. The label was excited about it and then they didn't renew us. So I mean. I, I don't know if that speaks to the marketing thing, but that's... Well, I, it, I mean, it, it, it does. <coughs> um, today's day and age, um, whether you have a label or whether you're independent, you have more control over where you go. Um, I feel that yeah. maybe what you just explained was that you may have lost control a little bit. People sort of took you and went, this is what we're going to do with you. And I know a lot of people yeah. have felt that way. And, and then, then they're like, boop. And then you're like, oh, here I am right. now. I used to have control, then they took it and it would, we were riding high and now uh, I feel like I've lost control again, but now where do I pick that up from? And, hmm. you know, I know that's a, that was a huge, for a lot of my friends who had, um, you know, decent record deals and eventually were dropped or they chose to somehow negotiate out of it. It's, it's, it's part of the business. It's almost yeah. like, you know, you got a job and they fired you because you weren't doing a good, you know, you weren't making enough money for That's that. That's true. Whatever it is. Um, but, you know, today uh, from an independent. No one's ever told me I got fired before, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got fired. Well, what happened? We got fired. <laughs> exactly. Well, they were right. fired us. I've heard that many times. You're fired. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess to tie that back to what's going on today is there's there's so much more control and opportunity. And, you know, a lot of the parents that ask me for my advice and my coaching and mentoring is that you do have total control, but you have to know the landscape. I, and a, a lot of parents and, and young up and comers come to me because they don't understand the landscape of where it was and where it is right now. Not to say that I know everything because I don't, yeah. but I, I've been through the churn cycle and I've gotten spit out on the other end, but I've always in my mind sort of maintained that control or independence, if you will. Um, I walked away from opportunities that scared the bejesus out of me because they wanted all control. And, you know, we as musicians, we create and because we like to control what comes out of us, I guess, a little bit, right? Um, and not just be a monkey playing on a, on a guitar or a drum set or singing, you know, play what we want you to play. Anyway, I'm, I'm moving through here. I think the experience that you had is a huge, um, a huge gold nugget for people that think that the end all be all is a record label. Um, and not to say wow. that it, that it can't be because it can, but today because of everything we have at our fingertips, you have much more control and whether that be a label that can help you with that next step or a label that gives you money, you have to make sure that you navigate, um, I guess what can be or what could happen. And that's exactly why we're doing this podcast is to really get the stories out there and get people to know who are the up and covers or even the people that have been in the industry for a long time that are still trying to keep their music and their careers relevant. Hearing these stories, it, it just helps put a little notch in your tool belt going, Oh, yeah. okay, I have to make sure I, that doesn't happen to me or this is where yeah. I should go. So I appreciate your time today very, very Absolutely. much. If there's anything else you want to just leave us with, a quick nugget? Um, I just, uh, you know, if you love to play music, there should not be any reason why you can't do it. And um, you just do it. I, I, I mean, it just, 
get it out there in some form. Like you say, try to make, it's not about making money, but if you uh, put the work in, you are entitled to make the money that, that you deserve. So, but I mean, the bottom line is if you want to play music, you can, you know, like that whole thing about going a lot, you know, this life only comes once. It's, I mean, I've lived that, so. Right, exactly. If you want to play music, you got to play it. Well, um, Matt Sherpella, thank you yeah. so much for speaking with us today. Sure. Um, truly appreciate it. And uh, I know probably your music is still out there. Bender is That's the right. name of the band. There you go. And, uh, you know, if you're in the, the Midwest, in the Milwaukee region, Matt is still out performing at times. And, you know, look him up. You can find him. What is the name of your group? I just play a bunch of cover stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Matt, for your time today. Truly appreciate it. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Thank you for visiting us at the Wise Musician Club. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook and listen to all the interviews and watch their video interviews of the podcast, go to The Wise Musician and like and follow the page. We look forward to seeing you back here or visiting our Facebook page.